that you're certain of as a Christian is the joy of growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ to serve him in the work of the gospel, recruiting people to come to Jesus and therefore enjoy eternal life with him who recruit others and do the same thing. That's a lot of words. Let's trim that down. The only joy you can expect as a believer in Jesus Christ from what the Apostle Paul teaches in Philippians is the joy of a, an occupation, a life of occupation with Christ that issues forth in a life of ministry in the gospel. Let's trim that down a little bit. The Christian life has great joy for you and a focus on Jesus that issues in gospel ministry. That is Philippians. And the Philippians are your awesome test case that everyone is saying, wait, 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 wait. I'm not a vocational minister. I'm not called to preach. I'm not called to go and learn a foreign language and preach in that foreign language. I'm not that person. I, I'm a little more introverted or whatever the, the thing is that I think I like to help or I like to give or whatever the giftedness you have. The Philippians churches or church, the believers in Philippi are the test case where everybody there, he draws a circle around all the Christians there, all the gifts, all the, 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 the different lifestyle things and the way people are, are different in their personality and all those things, whatever was going on as Christians in Philippi, whether you're a Roman slave or Lydia seller of purple or Roman guard in the prison in Philippi in Acts 16, wherever you are on uh, your personality and all your differences, Paul can draw a circle around that whole group and say, you are my partners in the ministry of the gospel. And my joy in success in ministry is going to become your joy in your success in ministry. And that's the Christian life. So he really does lock us all into this mission. In Philippians, he really does say that um, this, uh, this idea we have of a part-time Christian or, or a Sunday Christian or a, uh, a, a, a summer soldier, somebody that's Christian when they feel like it or, or on mission when uh, we get a message that really rouses us or something to be on mission. No, we're supposed to see our lives as sold out completely to the gospel enterprise and everything that we're doing, therefore, is in service to that. And that is radical. It is offensive to the American sensitivity or sensibility about life. It is not the way we think of our lives. It is not, uh, it is not fitting with our lifestyle, typically. Because life is hard. I have to feed the family. The kids have to be educated and all the things that they have to be involved in. Whatever the reason for the distraction that I claim I'm not really on mission, but it's, it's someday I'll become on mission, misses the point of the riches and the treasures of the spiritual life that we read in Philippians. One of my favorite evangelists is named Larry Moyer. He has a great book. I think it's 21 Things God Never Said, and it's about evangelism mostly. One of the chapters of these, you know, God never said invite Christ into your heart as the gospel presentation, for example. That's one of the great chapters. Well, don't invite Christ into your heart. Well, well, how do you, what do you do to become saved? You believe in Christ as your savior. Well, won't he come into my heart? Well, the scriptures teach that the Christian walking with the Lord is indwelled by the Father and the Son. And every believer has the Holy Spirit indwelling him. So yes, but, but the gospel presentation never is invite Christ into your heart, ever. What about Rome, uh, Revelation 3? It's not even talking about that. I stand at the door and knock. It's, it's talking to a church that has Christ outside, which is a real mess. All right. Moyer says, one of his chapters, I believe, let me paraphrase a little bit, says that if I don't evangelize, if I'm not evangelizing people, then I'm not a really Christian or I'm not walking with the Lord or something. And what he's doing and what we need to do is to help people not become legalistic and have some sort of guilt syndrome about sharing Christ. 
because of our fervor. See, pastors, pastors and leaders will get excited about the mission because we've read Philippians, and then we'll, we'll lay a, a weight on you that you are not mature to carry. And then, you'll, and then you'll feel guilty, and then this church becomes this legalistic thing about how many people did you win or how much share in Christ are you doing or something like that. And um, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is, uh, is, 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 is that's hands stuff. That's what you're doing. And what, I, what I'd like you to do is start with heart because heart gives you what you say, heart gives you what you do. And if we go for what we think, what we love, what we want, what we're committed to, if you let God conform your character, your renovation of your thinking to the character of Christ through Philippians, for example, the hands and the mouth are going to follow. You're going to say, I'm supposed to politeo, I'm supposed to, or politeo, I'm supposed to uh, conduct myself as a citizen, uh, live my life fitting for the gospel because the word of God has said so, and I want to serve my savior and I'm, I'm in a relationship with him. And so the commands of scripture land where they need to land. And I asked you last time I was here, I said, what would it take for me, for you to change the way we think, what changes would be necessary for us to think of ourselves as partners with Paul, partners, fellow workers in this enterprise of the gospel, what changes would have to happen? And in my opinion, uh, America, the changes that are necessary in your heart and my heart are necessary in the hearts of our culture, our civilization, our nation, for us to enjoy the prosperity and freedoms that we have. Our liberty is not license. It's regulated by self and self-regulation, as you know, is a function really of the filling of the spirit, the fruit of the spirit is self-control. What I'm talking about is if we as a people were on mission, I'm not saying everyone in the country is a Christian. I'm saying if the Christians in the country were on mission, if we've all made that adjustment, this country would be very, very different. And we wouldn't be playing and we wouldn't be passing time. We wouldn't be, and I mean, wasting our lives in enjoying the moment for self we would find a different kind of joy that Paul takes us to in Philippians 1 in his autobiography. What I'm saying is, yes, everyone needs to trust in Christ as their Savior, and then they need to become disciples by, keep it, by learning to keep all that Jesus has commanded, by learning to obey what Jesus has commanded. And that's Matthew 28, make disciples by an evangelism process that ends in baptism and then by teaching them to keep all that i've commanded you and so that puts you right on mission every christian becomes a, a mission worker and i don't mean part-time christianity i mean all the time walking by the spirit and all of you who are working in a job in a career this becomes part of that mission that's what i'm saying i'm not saying stop doing your job and become like go to Bible college or Schaefer Theological Seminary, which we highly recommend you get part of, become part of. And, and then you quit your work and then I'm surrendering to preach or something. And then now you're going to be working for the Lord. That's not the way it works. Titus is the vocational minister in the, in the book of Titus. Paul's writing to, he says, you be an example to the younger men in your work ethic. Doesn't mean that they are now quitting their jobs and not providing for their families. It means that Titus is a workman that needs not to be ashamed. And so these other men become hard workers for the sake of the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that's a different way of thinking about your job. Think I'm missing it with the New Testament when I say, take the Lord Jesus to work as your boss at your job and serve him in how you do your work and the power that he supplies. I think I'm, I'm missing that. You check out Colossians 3 and Ephesians 6 when we talk about slaves and masters. The Lord is your master. You work for the Lord and you watch what the, your, your human boss thinks about your production. And maybe you'll be tested in this area. We all are at times where your human boss doesn't appreciate the awesome service that you render. Then you trust in your father who is judging, who is watching. You entrust yourself to him who judges righteously. And your righteous service as unto the Lord will be rewarded by the Lord 
when it's time. And that's the judgment seat of Christ for sure, if not sooner. And that's the way we're, you and I are supposed to think about our lives. Even at work, Jesus is the boss. So when the human boss says, lie on the, the, the loading dock, the lading document or whatever, lie to get over. You say, I've got a higher authority that says I must not do that, but I'm the boss here at work. Yeah, but you hired me and I'm a Christian and I can't do that because my actual, my, my higher authority says not to. And by the way, with all respect and deference to your position of authority here, you shouldn't be asking for this. This is not going to go well for you either. And that's a Daniel. That's Shadrach and the boys. That's, that's somebody who is humble before the human authority as unto the Lord who's delegated that authority, but there's a higher responsibility to God in the moment. You can take God with you uh, to work and you can be on mission for the gospel as you consider your work. And I don't mean, as I've told you, I don't mean preaching Christ to your coworkers unless wisdom dictates that you can. But here's what you're looking for. You're looking for the open door. You're looking for the opportunity. You're looking for that person that wants to have this conversation. And, and it may be a lot of personal interaction to get to that point. And, and you're thinking about this and you're concerned for this person. By the way, we're praying without ceasing and God is with me and he's present in the circumstance. And so this conversation I'm having with another person, I'm actually God is in the conversation. I'm talking to him. I'm not talking out loud to him, to the other person. So it's weird. I'm actually praying for this person that I'd like to see come to Christ. And that puts you on mission at your work in a way that I could never be as a vocational pastor. Doing this here equips you to go and be that person praying for that unbelieving coworker, that boss that knows not Christ. And this is what's awesome about what I'm looking. I'm looking at a bunch of hardworking people who have supervisors and subordinates. Your people at work up and down the chain should be the most prayed for Christian loved people. And how you're concerning yourself before God on their account. They should be the most prayed for people that, that in town. Because we're on mission. Because we know that we're here to represent Jesus Christ. And it's not about getting through the day so that I can get home. It's about in the moment, what does God have for me in this life? And that's how Paul looks at the Philippians. How can I prove that to you? Because the occasion for Paul writing the letter is all the work that they had done in their job had given them income. They got their shekels. They got their denarii from their work. And they used a portion of that transaction, the trade of my energy, my effort, my productivity for the pay that I received. They used a portion of that to put Paul into full-time ministry directly. Watch this. The Philippians work hard in their jobs. Lydia sells a lot of purple fabric. And as a consequence, and the Roman jailer is paid by the Romans to do his jailer work with, with his wage. And they have budgeted themselves to a point where they're disciplined and they're able to set aside enough for Paul to marvel at the giving of the Macedonians, putting him into full-time ministry. And for that reason, they are his partners. Notice what I'm saying. He draws a circle around all the Christians in Philippi. He says, you are my partners in the gospel because of your enabling me through the shekels. The money you gave puts me in full-time work that I could not have gone in otherwise. We read that when he's dealing with the Corinthians. And so what I want you to understand is that you're working nine to five for the boss, or in some of your cases, six to three or whatever it is, your working is directly part of the ministry of the gospel. And you are a soldier of the cross and you are a workman, a workwoman that needs not be ashamed. That's the idea that Paul is praising these Philippians for. And here's, here, here's what I want to say. There's two categories of people hearing this as Christians, two kinds of Christian are hearing this people that have never experienced what I'm talking about. So we don't know the joy of knowing that I'm on mission this way. 
and people that do, they know it from experience. They know exactly like, yeah, this is where it is. Now, here's the thing. If you're in this category that I don't even know from experience what you're saying, and I, I think you're going to show me in Philippians how this is true, but I really don't know about this. It's a faith claim. It's something that I'm telling you from the word of God is here that God is telling us is, is what our life is for. And I know you haven't experienced it. You never have till you do. But it is a major missing part of your Christian life. You're missing on, out on maybe the main thrust of what you're supposed to experience as a Christian. I don't mean just giving. I mean seeing my life as the mission. I think we know this in some way sort of instinctively as we come to the word. But Philippians makes it so explicit. And I know that you are Philippians. You are a Philippian church. You are a witness to many because of how you support the ministry of the gospel, because of how you're on mission in your life. But we never look at the scriptures and say, good, I checked that block. We always say with Paul to the Thessalonians, you're doing well, do better. Just as you're serving the Lord and, and growing in love, so serve and grow more. And we never are satisfied. I recently, as in very recently, saw an excellent film. It may be the best thing I've seen in years. And of course, it's Ford versus Ferrari. Did you see that? That was, it was like Rocky without anybody punch. Well, there was some punching, but very little. It was like Rocky on the racetrack. It was great. And it's based on a true story. So that's really cool. And Carol Shelby's from Texas. Anyway, so, so the, it, you come away not really liking Ford Motors, Motor Company, after seeing this uh, presentation. You really like the Shelby. You really like Ken Miles, but you don't like Ford. They're the bad guys. It's really Ford versus itself is what the title of the movie should have been called. But anyway, um, don't get upset about the politics of which kind of car you like. My point is there's this portion in the film. If you haven't seen it, I, I don't usually recommend films. I recommend this one. It's actually a really great uh, story, the way they tell it. But at the end of the Le Mans race, spoiler alert, by the way, they win. And you can look it up on Wikipedia. They won for years. But at the end of the great 24-hour race where they are, it's really awesome, 24 hours around this eight-mile track. At the end of Le Mans, the, the very difficult personality problem racing genius that is Ken Miles, who doesn't know how to deal with people, but he knows cars. And he knows cars apparently better than anyone else at this point in his profession because he is so far ahead of everyone else and it's in a car that he designed at the end of the race he is so far ahead of everyone that it's 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 an amazing testimony to the effort that they've gone in for years building this ford racing platform and the executives get involved and they say okay so what we want we've got a racing team there's two other cars we need all the cars to line up and cross the finish line at the same time so have, have Ken pull back and, and be, be joined by the other cars. Now, Ken can do more and he can go faster in this car than anyone else because he can handle it better. And uh, it's very deadly what he does, but he's good at it until he died doing it. He's good at it. And, and so he was, he was going to blow away all the records for his own racing ability and for what Ford could have accomplished. He would have really, he should have maxed out. They should have said, when the car crosses the finish line, we want it to almost explode. We want it to, to be done completely with all that it can give. So let's see what this thing can do. But instead, the executives, the way the story is told, decide that they want Ken to pull back. I mean, he's already won. He's won the race. And really, that's two years and, and a lot of heartbreak and hardship to get there. He's already won. So just pull back and let's cross the finish line together. Well, they ended up robbing him of his victory on a technicality, the way the story is told. But it's very, it's this very bizarre thing that you're like, it feels like your spirit is being broken when they tell them to pull back. And there's a reason for that because we're supposed to max out. Watch this, check this show out. It's a great, it's a great story. 
And it's a lot of fun if you like the sound of, of high revving motors. It's great. I recommend it in surround sound. Um, my illustration is meant to show you that it's contrary to our nature to back off. Now, we do back off. We say, oh, it's good enough. But the word of God tells you as you're increasing and advancing, you need to advance more. You're doing well, do better. Don't slow down. Don't stop. Run up the scoreboard is the message. And the salutary letters Paul has, you're doing well. And so let me equip you to take it to the next level. There's always the next level. There's always the next level. In Philippians, the book in chapter three of never being satisfied with what you've attained. All right, so let's get into the actual text with that long introduction and welcome back. It's good to be with you. Paul says in verse 12, some on the one hand are preaching Christ indeed from, uh, no, verse 12. Uh-oh. Ah. I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out to the greater advance of the gospel. He's in prison. The, the threat of death is on him because he's in prison for uh, Nero. For, I've, I've, he's appealed to Caesar and he's in Roman prison. And the, the Caesar can just say, I want this troublemaker. I want him ended. And so his life is in the hands of the governing authorities. And he is uh, restricted and all the problems that will be associated with Roman imprisonment for a citizen in Rome. And uh, Paul has other problems too. He has health problems. And so Paul is, is going through hardship and Epaphroditus has reported to the Philippians about Paul's situation. And so they are concerned. And he says, you've renewed your concern for me later. And so Paul is saying, my circumstances, bad as they are, have turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, the greater advance of the gospel, so that my chains have become visible or evident in Christ and the whole praetorian and all the rest. Now, Paul could not have planned. See, a lot of people, marketing people make plans and they try to get the word out. I mean, that's what marketing is. And there's great value in uh, sales and marketing with, with companies. And so they're constantly strategizing, how can we get the most people to look at what we're saying? Right? Well, um, uh, that's probably uh, a good thing in business, but it doesn't really uh, address how Paul lives. Paul is out to get the word out for Christ and he gets arrested. He gets imprisoned. And what God does with his imprisonment and his suffering is he lets the world know about it. And so Paul is on mission. He goes to prison. He stays on mission in prison. That is used by God to advance the gospel. And so he doesn't have to strategize about marketing. He's on message. Message takes him to prison. Prison takes the message to the world. And that's how God does it. That's what you just walk with him. He knows what he wants from you. God knows the plan he has for you. And the plan he has for you is discipleship and representing him and recruiting those who would be more disciples. And that's what we're doing. So my, my chains have become evident in Christ and the whole praetorian and all the rest. And the majority of the brothers in the Lord having been convinced of, uh, convinced by my chains so much the more dare to speak the word without fear. So I am in prison as I'm suffering and rejoicing and encouraging people to, to continue the work and keep the faith and fight the good fight. As I am in chains proclaiming Christ, they are emboldened. And that is so important. The spirit in which you would do something is everything. You know, the coach comes in at halftime. We're down two, two touchdowns. What's he going to say to him? Well, hopefully something that's going to help them catch that grit that, that goes and fights and the defense does its job and maybe we'll, we'll catch back up. The coach is going to try to say something that will inspire them and they will be fully invested in their, in their attitude, in their concentration, in their feelings. And they're going to be inspired. Paul is able to say God using him in this story is emboldening the other people, the other Christians, the majority of the other Christians to go and proclaim Christ. So it is this way. If Paul hadn't been imprisoned, then there wouldn't have been the effective ministry that he had. It wouldn't have been as effective. It is perhaps true that this is directly necessary, that Paul would be imprisoned. And so the gospel would be 
radiating out this way. This may have been necessary uh, for us to be here today with the word of God from the Apostle Paul. Certainly true, he had to be in prison to write the letter to the Philippians. Certainly true that those circumstances have furthered the gospel in our lives. And so this is huge, the way to think about your life. God is doing a work even in my imprisonment. God is doing work even in my suffering and my unfair treatment in whatever the situation is. And we don't say, well, I'm looking at my situation and it is these obstacles. And so I'll be on mission once those obstacles are removed. No, it may be that the obstacle is how the mission is advanced. And that's the way, this is God you're dealing with. And you don't get into his wheelhouse of how he's arranging things. He's told you what he wants from you. So you be on mission. And so we have this example in Paul's life. So people are preaching the word without fear because Paul is encouraging them from his chains. Some on the one hand are preaching Christ indeed from envy and strife. You have enemies of Paul that are Christians. This is not a surprise. We've read first Corinthians. We know about politics. Politics is where you're not thinking about principle. It's where you're thinking about persons, politics. That's what I mean by politics. Paul's not popular with some people because he hurt their feelings or he, they don't like his personality or they've, they've immaturely as, as immature believers, they have embraced this teacher in comparison to Paul. And they've made these false comparisons where as though the Holy spirit working in any of us is in competition with himself. It's, a, it's, it's absurd for me to live as Christ. If you can say it, then we're not in competition. Christ is not in competition with himself. But that's what happens in Paul's life. And that's what happens in all our lives. You get these, these playpen ideas that creep in from the world, from the flesh, and certainly inspired by the devil. And so you have Christians opposing Paul, which would be a satanic thing to do in how they're preaching Christ so that it will cause Paul suffering. But on the other hand, some are preaching Christ because of goodwill. Now, again, I said last time your Bible may have these in different orders in verses uh, 15 through 17, but um, I'm, I think that the, the order Paul wrote it is in your King James and New King James. And so um, my verse numbering will differ because of the New American Standard. So on the one hand, some are preaching Christ because of envy and strife, but on the other hand, some are also preaching Christ because of goodwill. And that meaning they want to see Paul's mission that he has them on advance. They're really recognizing Paul as an apostle and a servant of the Lord and they, and they're following him. So out of goodwill. Now these latter, the goodwill people are proclaiming Christ out of love, knowing that unto the defense of the gospel, I'm appointed. See, here's what Paul is in bad situation. He's physically hurt. He's, he's got some sort of uh, problem with his eyes. He's afflicted. When someone's afflicted, we get speculative. Oh, what'd you do wrong? What's the Lord, uh, trying to wake you up out of. If only you weren't doing whatever the secret sin is that God's punishing you for, maybe you wouldn't have these physical afflictions. And Paul, we know you've been struggling with your eyes. We know your voice is weak. And now you're in prison. When are you going to wake up and serve the Lord instead of this justification by faith you keep preaching or whatever it is that they're, I mean, he's, they're preaching the gospel, but they're doing it from envy and strife. It's a very, it's one of the strangest things to me in the new Testament. Paul says there are Christian brothers preaching the gospel to oppose me. But some are preaching out of goodwill proclaiming Christ out of love, knowing that unto the defense of the gospel I'm appointed. And so what I'm doing in prison and in my physical suffering is part of that mission. But the former, these people that are preaching from envy and strife, they're working their work from selfish ambition, not sincerely because they intend to increase tribulation in my chains. They think if we can bring Paul down, that somehow brings us up. So selfish ambition, Paul says. I wish I could report to you that that's not a problem in the Christian uh, ministry and leadership and Christian work, that that's not a problem, selfish ambition. I wish I could report that, but according to the word of God and every ministry experience I've ever had, it's a problem. It's a problem. Here's the interesting thing. 
These Christians that are struggling with this problem, this arrogance, this selfish ambition, this glorify self through the ministry of the gospel or oppose the person that I'm opposing through the ministry of the gospel, they're not always doing that. They have a sin nature. Sometimes they give into it. They have tendencies and they feel comfortable with them. And sometimes this is the very strange thing we do. We think our sinful tendency is God's plan or God's will. We think we're serving God in our arrogance. And it's really great to go back to the Bible because it constantly humbles you. It constantly takes you down from what you, the image you've created of yourself and says, that's just an idol that constantly has to be destroyed And you have to get your focus back on the Lord Jesus Christ. See, when their eyes are on Paul and they hate Paul and they're opposed to Paul, so they're going to go hurt him somehow by preaching the gospel and and try to get him in trouble with the Romans or something. As they do this, um, they're not thinking of the Lord Jesus Christ. They've lost their focus. They're focused on Paul. And what maybe there was a legitimate complaint. Maybe Paul wronged them somehow at some point. I'm sure he apologized or... Maybe they perceive a wrong. A lot of times people perceive wrong or neglect when um, they just don't have all the facts, which is always the case. And so their focus is on Paul and he's the problem in their way they've, in their petty, you know, sinfulness, as we all struggle with, they've made it about him. And the solution to their problem is not to unpack their problem with Paul with a therapist. The solution to their problem is to stop worrying about Paul and start thinking about Jesus Christ. And as you go to him and take who he is and what he wants with you, you go back and look at Paul and say, sinner saved by grace. And you deal with him in terms of who Jesus Christ is. And then you love him for what God is doing in him. And you're able and see that that's the needed adjustment. But I I can solve these people's problem or my problem by going back to the cross every single time. But Paul doesn't do that here. He just says that there's a problem and they want to hurt me. And so they preach the gospel. But verse 18 is a thrill. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense, those are enemy people, those Christians opposed to him, or in truth, those who are on mission with him, Christ is proclaimed. Passive voice, Christ is proclaimed. Because Paul is going back to the cross. He's not looking at these people. He's looking at Jesus and saying, this is what we're supposed to be about. This really does sort out the, the hardships in life. All the hardships of people hurting you and they, they, won't, they, won't, they won't apologize or whatever. They don't see it the same way. A lot of times the problems that I get with interpersonal problems will be a perceived wrong with a, an explanation uh, on the other party that will, here's what I think happened, but I think you've misunderstood, you know, and then we can't get together on the story. Your story doesn't line up with my experience. So we have to agree to disagree on what happened. That's a really difficult place because now I just have to disregard the wrong suffered and love the person for God's sake and therefore want what God wants for them and advance that. And have to let the problem go. It's great. Go back to the cross. Whatever they, they're confused about, God will separate and sort that out for them. I don't have to bring them back to, to reality on this. Right? But the, the solution is always the cross. And that's what Paul is able to do. He can negotiate this very bizarre situation of verses 12 through 17 by saying, the good news is, the good news is being preached. Whether in pretense or truth. And in this I am rejoicing. In this, I am in the present tense. I am rejoicing right now in chains as I write this. I am thrilled. This is Christian joy. It's the fruit of the spirit and it's the product of ministry. It's the result of being on mission. I get to see the gospel advance and that's what I want in life. Christians, if you don't have this sense as a daily factor in your life, as American Christians, we tend not to. But if you don't think like Paul thinks where joy comes from seeing the gospel advanced, Joy comes from seeing the gospel advanced. If you don't think this way, feel this way, experience this, ask God to do a work in you. Ask him to think like Paul thinks, help me become like this. We all need that renovation. We're not born rejoicing because the gospel is preached. We're not born again rejoicing, generally rejoicing that the gospel is preached. And to give it 10 years as a new Christian uh, who comes to Christ, oh yeah, the gospel. But if you see the effectiveness of the gospel. We see people coming to Christ. It's the greatest. It's the great joy Paul has. 
And he also says, I also will rejoice. And it's in the future tense. Now in my English Bible, let me, let me pull up the English and in, in other words, turn the page. Yes, and I will rejoice, he says. Now in English, we don't always pick up the, the subtleties of the Greek because we can't. But it's a well-translated uh, little section. My, little, my Bible hits a, a carriage return, kind of indents it. Yes, I will rejoice. And he starts this new thought and it's about the future. How do I know Paul is talking about the future? In verse 18, he says, I am rejoicing. Let me get my, my laser beam. I am rejoicing, but also I will rejoice. The way I know he's talking about the future is Paul uses uh, the word for rejoicing, Cairo, in the future tense. And the future tense in Greek, I am going to be very controversial. It means future action, action in the future time. And so Paul says, not only am I rejoicing and what, how, by the way, have you figured out the dynamics of Christian joy? We should do a little booklet dynamics of Christian joy. What is it? I see favorable things. I experience favorable things and I have an appropriate emotional response called joy to the favorable thing. That's what joy is. It is how you feel in consequence of the thing that you are desiring. Getting the satisfaction of a desire is joy. That feeling you get of that satisfaction, that's joy. Don't disparage Christian feeling. You desperately need it. You desperately need it. Those who reject emotion or feeling as part of the Christian life are very emotional in that rejection. You can't get what you're human. You're stuck being human. Now, notice the difference between legitimate Christian feeling and being driven by your feelings follow your heart, all that. We're not called to be a slave to our feelings. We're called to be servants of Jesus Christ. And the spirit gives us the necessary feelings that correspond to his word. And here it is. I'm rejoicing the gospel's advanced. And in the future, I will rejoice the dynamics of Christian joy. There's a good thing that happens. And I respond to that good thing because it's the satisfaction of a desire. That's how it works. So Paul says, not only am I seeing effectiveness now in the gospel ministry, but I'm going to rejoice in the future in effectiveness in the gospel ministry. That's what he's saying. And that's what he launches into in verse 19. For I know that this situation will turn for me, will turn out unto salvation. I will rejoice in the future in the flesh because you're praying for me through your supplication and the support epicorgeia, the supply necessary that is given to me by the spirit of Jesus Christ. I just want to point out real quick. He says the support of the spirit of Jesus Christ, the support of the spirit of Jesus Christ, the Greek word comes. It's a very interesting thing. It comes from the word for chorus. The word in Greek for chorus is chorus. That's very helpful. All right. When you chorus as a verb, in Greek, in Paul's day, when you turn it into a verb, you verbify the word chorus, you corrigeo. And I thought this was going to say something about courage. I was going for courage as where we, it's not, it's not. Their courage is all through this passage, but that's not what we're talking about. He's talking about the funds necessary to assemble and train a chorus. This is what the chorus would do to get a group of singers together. You have to have a chorus master. He has to be trained and educated and eventually paid to do that. And if you're going to send them to an event, you have to pay for the various expenses. And so in the ancient world, for you to be able to have a chorus sing at something, a public event at the public speaking or at the forum or something, there would have to be a patron of the art to get the chorus together. And that patron is Corrigeo. He is supporting, supplying the funds for the chorus. That's where the word comes from. When Paul says it, he's not thinking of choir practice. Because in Paul's day, this is a common word. I've given you the etymology of it, the origin of the word. But in Paul's day, this epicorrigeo means to supply, to support. And you can, you can see how funding the art funding, supporting. However, that's what the Holy Spirit is doing for Paul. I will be saved. I will, uh, this will turn out into salvation through your prayers, that word for urgent, specific requests in prayer, your prayers. So you're supposed to be praying for me and God is going to use 
somehow, and this is how the, the mystery of prayer, God in his plan is going to incorporate your prayers for my deliverance, encouragement, strength, success in the ministry of the gospel. He's going to use that to, to, to save me in this sense of success of performance. And we'll read about that in verse 20. He's going to use these prayers and the spirit of God is going to give me the support. He's going to underwrite my effort. He's going to give me the supply that I need. And I know this is going to happen. I know this is going to happen. So I will rejoice in this provision of verse 19. That's what he says in verse 19 In verse 20. And this is the standard of what he's looking for in his salvation. According to my eager expectation and hope, not that I'll be sprung from prison, not that, uh, not, not that my eyes are going to get healed or whatever the problem is. He's got, he says, according to my eager expectation and hope that in nothing will I be ashamed. Those preaching the gospel to oppose me are heaping shame on me for my estate, for my trouble. But in nothing will I be ashamed, but with all boldness, just as always, even now, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether through life or through death. That is salvation. The salvation Paul talks about in verse 19, it doesn't mean that you're the first time you trust in Christ, you were justified, declared righteous and saved. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about what his life is for. And it's what I started with. Your salvation is Christ exalted in your body, whether through life or through death. That is the Christian life. We know the specifics of what that looks like. It's the word of God being used by the spirit to saturate our souls and characterize us with Christ so that we imitate the father in love in the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ on the mission he's given us to make more disciples. How can I say that everything filters right into the mission? Because the mission is stated in Matthew 28 is that unbelievers come to know Christ and have eternal life and believers come to serve Christ as they grow in the word. The two things that every person in the two categories of humanity need, everybody is in two categories. They're either unbelievers or they're believers and unbelievers need Christ. So they need life because they're headed to the lake of fire and believers need to grow in the grace and knowledge of our, our Lord and savior so they can be on mission and serve him to make the most of their lives. Or as Paul, as Paul says, that Christ would be exalted in their body. The mission is Christian love. It is the way we express love to all humanity. And that's why love is the command. And then the commission is the fulfillment of that command to love. I hope you can connect those thoughts together. That's our summary theology of the functional Christian life. According to the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostle Paul, welcome to the Christian life of Paul. So Paul says, I know that my situation in verse 19 will turn out to my salvation through your prayers and the power and support of the spirit of God, the support he provides according to my knowledge of this salvation through the spirit is according to my eager expectation and hope that I won't be ashamed, but with all boldness, just as always, even now, Christ will be exalted in my body. So I will not be ashamed of the gospel. I will not be brought to shame in my proclamation of the gospel, but I will have boldness in my, in my proclamation of Christ. And because of the spirit, because of your prayers, this boldness issues forth and the exaltation of Christ in my frame and who I am, whether alive, whether living here in this Roman world in prison or whether I die, that's the ministry of the gospel. The entirety of Philippians won't be this autobiographical example for you and me, but when we have it, let's, let's watch the example and make the necessary adjustments. We have just seen the attitude of the apostle Paul laid open for us. We've just seen a picture of what right looks like and how to think about enemies, friends, suffering, and salvation, exaltation, the purpose of life. We've just seen a, a mirror that shows you what you should be in your attitude. The question is, will we walk away from this mirror, pretend like we didn't see it, we didn't know what the adjustments were we needed to make, or are we gonna take it to heart and say, I need to be the kind of person that is so saturated with the scriptures that I'm occupied with Jesus Christ so that I'm on mission in the power of his spirit. That I'm so saturated with the scriptures 
that I'm occupied with Christ and therefore I live a life of prayer so that I'm concerned for the unbelievers around me and the believers regarding the Great Commission. Because that's where Paul lives. And am I so saturated with the scriptures and the power of the spirit that I'm occupied with Christ, that I'm bold, not, uh, not oppressive and not offensive in my personality, but I'm bold. I'm unafraid. I'm so certain of the things that God has told me that I'm unashamed. I'm, I'm fearless. And what are, what are they going to kill me? So if I, if, if I die or if I live, Christ is exalted in my body. And that's what we are supposed to be. That's why Paul writes it to the Philippians. And this is, this is taking them and us to that next level, to that next step in our Christian life. I want to be bold. I want to be unashamed. I want to be saved in the sense of my significance, that my life matters in God's eyes and my daily choices. And let's break up our lives. Let's break up our lives into the, the increments God has given us. Today, all you get, you're guaranteed that you're here right now. Descartes has been misunderstood, but he was right. He knows he's thinking. He knows he's alive because he's thinking. You know you have a spiritual life because you're sitting here right now. You know you're alive. So you know God has a plan for your life is what I'm trying to say. And all you get is today. Now, today includes plans for tomorrow. It includes learning the lessons of yesterday, but it is still just today. These are the increments. Your life, your life is a necklace that should be composed of exquisite diamonds, emeralds, rubies, jewels, some chunks of solid gold, some quality materials. Your life in its days, your life needs to be step by step the description Paul has of service to the Lord Jesus and the power of the spirit. That's what life is. And each day is another piece on this beautiful necklace that God is putting together of your life. And if, if you won't do it, if you won't make the adjustment, then you're still going to have the day, however many God has given you, but it's not going to have the quality that it should have had. What I'm trying to say is a life that Jesus Christ says is well lived at the judgment seat of Christ will be composed of days of your life that have been well lived. And do you have days and weeks and in some cases months and years that you need to say, I reject that in choosing to embrace what God has for me in the word. It's called waking up. Most interesting thing today is the people that are most asleep in the culture call themselves woke. <laughs> and all God's people said, amen. But we do need to wake up to what we're told here. There's a spiritual life that is mission focused and it is glorious. And why would you not, let, let me close with this thought. Why would we not adopt this attitude and lifestyle approach where even at my work, I'm serving the Lord. The, the effort I'm doing is, for, is in the power of the spirit and I consider it sacred, the duty that I have. I'm talking about showing up to your job and doing your job that I see it sacred duty is worship to God. What stops us from doing this? I think there's one four letter word One four-letter word that stops us. Now, Paul says in the book of Philippians, he uses the word scubula, and that translates into an English four-letter word that I'm not thinking of. Five words focused on one four-letter word that explain why we don't do what God says for us to do. Now, it may be that you're not convinced that the word of God as I've taught it, I mean, the word of God as it is, and my prayer is that I've taught it as it is, that the word of God has not had its effect, that you don't really believe it. That's a big problem. And that's, that's the problem in James of not believing what God has said, so you don't do it. By the way, if you do believe it now and you don't do it tomorrow, then you stop believing it at some point. That's the James 2 message for Christians. If you, if you believe it now, but you don't do it tomorrow, then at some point you have stopped believing. And the reason you stop believing is you stop thinking about it and you got distracted. Real common. Real, start your day with the word and prayer. Live your life in a day of prayer. Spend time in the word. You won't, you won't do that. You'll keep believing. Journey said, don't stop believing. Now, what's the four-letter word in the five-word sentence? I don't feel like it. And the word is feel. We don't feel like doing 
what God's word says to do. That's the reason we disobey God. We don't feel like it. This is why in the solid teaching of God's word on righteous living versus feelings, a lot of times it sounds like preachers like me will say feelings are bad. It sounds like we're saying feelings are evil or feelings are sinful and so emotions are bad. But the truth is that because of the presence of your sinful nature, you have feelings that militate against God's purposes. And you don't feel like starting the day in the word. You don't feel like drinking water when you really are dehydrated. You don't feel like the thing that you need to do. And that's where discipline kicks in. We do a little bit of John Wayne and say a man does what he's got to do. Right, Pilgrim? Uh, I don't care what you feel like. Facts don't care about your feelings, as one beloved unbeliever likes to say. And you choose the thing that you're responsible for despite the fact that you have feelings against it. I don't feel like getting up and going to work, but we do it anyway, right men? Right ladies? We, we do what's, what we're responsible for because there are other feelings I'm actually trying to avoid that are much worse in part. That's one reason. Maybe it's because you have learned the joy of duty and getting it right. And that joy is way better than the temporary satisfaction of sleeping in. My point is the reason we don't do what God says to do is because we don't feel like it. Ask God for different feelings. God, change me. Help me want what you want. Do a work in my heart. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the privilege and the opportunity this morning to proclaim Christ's death until he comes. We do this in our lives, Father, because our life is bought courtesy of the blood of Christ, his death. And we thank you for him. Thank you for this assembly of believers who love you and want to know you on your terms and we are looking for the spiritual transformation that can only come about by your spirit's work in us through your word, placing us squarely in that position of lovers, imitators of God as beloved children walking in love. And then the way you've clearly exhibited your love is the mission that the unbeliever would know you through the work of Christ, that the believer would be occupied with Jesus Christ and so walk according to his direction. Father, let this be true for us. And at times we know we feel differently. Father, we want you to transform us. Help us want what you want so that we can be what you want us to be. And we know that ultimately this little bit of de delayed gratification has an eternal consequence. Let us learn it, Father. Let us rejoice now in anticipation of what's coming as Paul does. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.